Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Richard Thompson Ford, the author of the new book, Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Made History. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Could you tell my listeners a little bit about who you are and how you came to write this book? Well, I'm a law professor at Stanford, and I teach, among other things, um, employment discrimination. I've taught some constitutional law. And one of the surprising things that I found in studying anti-discrimination law is how many disputes involve a dress code of some kind, either an employee who's resisting a dress code, cases involving um, high school students who are sent home from school for um, defying a school dress code, and also how strongly people feel about these dress codes. So in the employment discrimination context, what's striking is that you have employees who are willing to risk or even in fact, lose good jobs because they don't want to comply with the dress code, and employers who are willing to lose otherwise good employees who won't comply with a workplace dress code. And that always struck me as something that was striking, particularly in a society where we tend to say, we don't care about dress, we're above that, it's superficial. So everyone says, who cares? But people are actually making decisions in their day-to-day lives um, that suggest they care a great deal. And getting interested in that was one of the reasons that I wanted to explore this more in depth and got started on this project. There's a personal reason as well, which is my father actually trained as a tailor. He he was a university administrator. He's also an ordained minister. He was a community activist. But he trained as a tailor in college at a time when African-Americans often learned both a trade as well as a profession in order to kind of backstop against the risk that racism might keep them from their chosen profession. And because he trained as a tailor, he knew a lot about clothing, the way they should be constructed, quality clothing, and thought a lot about self-presentation. And as a child growing up, I noticed the way he took care with his appearance, and he cared about it, even in context where other people might dress very casually, he thought it was important to present a dignified and professional image. And that was a part of his relationship to the world. It was a part of his self-expression, but it was also very clearly a way for him to navigate uh, a difficult terrain with respect to race relations. And, you know, he became a university administrator at a time when there were relatively few African-Americans working in higher education and certainly had to confront some degree of racism and racial resistance. What I loved about this book was that while you definitely get into the moral, social, and legal implications to various dress codes, what you really do is you go back and you look at what fashion has meant at various parts of history and how it changes and evolves. And so it's also such an interesting history of fashion and the values that we assign to it. I think that probably there isn't a single one of my listeners who hasn't experienced being dressed incorrectly for an occasion. Uh, You know, you misjudged, you wore something wrong, and you are extremely conscious of it and about it. And I think it's at those times particularly that we notice the power that fashion has. But the coded messages that we put on fashion really change over the ages. And I would love to hear, were there any huge surprises to you as you were researching this when it came to uh, what we wear and why we wear it? 
Yes, there were a lot of surprises. As I started to look back in history, the first surprise was how far back in history I felt I had to go in order to get my bearings. So I started off thinking I'd write a book about the late 20th century, and I wound up writing a book that started in the late Middle Ages. One of the reasons for that was that the way fashion evolved and the roots of the way we currently experience um, the importance of fashion started in the late Middle Ages when clothing, um, new techniques in clothing made it much more expressive and gave it the possibility to kind of express individual personality. And so the first big surprise was the way that fashion during this period of time, this early period, um, it did two things. One, it could express social status. And of course, that's familiar to us today, but it was much more pronounced and much more explicit in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance that clothing was designed to express high status. You know, the stereotype is the only the king may wear purple. But in fact, the laws were extremely elaborate much more elaborate than just the king wearing purple. In some cases, you know, quite specific types of clothing that were restricted according to social rank with 20 or 30 different social ranks included. So that, but also the resistance to that and the way that individuals used fashion in order not only to try to express a particular social rank, but also to express their own unique individual personality. And it's really the emergence of that sense of individualism and the way fashion contributed to that, that kind of defines the whole story, in my view, and was one of the big surprises. To me, I knew about sumptuary laws and, you know, regulations when it came to, oh, like you said, I think that, you know, many listeners probably have heard that, you know, there were these restrictions about, you know, who could wear what, you know, you can't wear a crown if you're not a queen. Uh, and that sort of, and in fact, in the book, you mentioned a couple queens who were quite put out that ladies were wearing headdresses that were essentially just like their own crowns. How yeah. terrible. But one thing that I had never heard about and really found fascinating was the Great Masculine Renunciation, which has a tremendous name. Uh, and it sounds like the Protestant Reformation. <laughs> and it seems like that was happening at about the same time. Mm -hmm. But tell us about the Great Masculine Renunciation and how it led to uh, what men are even today expected to put on before they enter a law office. Yes. So a psychologist named John Carl Flugel, who wound up being an activist in a men's dress reform movement, wrote in the 1930s about this moment that he describes as the great masculine renunciation. And this occurred in the late 1700s. What's striking is that before the great masculine renunciation, the Types of clothing that signified high status did so by being sumptuous, decorated, ostentatious. So you have jewels, you have brocade, you have you know, a great, elaborate, and in many ways impractical costume. And if you look at portraits from that period of time, you can see it quite clearly. And this was true for men and women. Um, so men, even in some cases, as much or more so than women, would wear this kind of elaborate clothing, ostrich plumes and a hat and jewels and makeup. And this was what signified high status. Sometime in the late 1700s, this began to shift, and men began to cast off this kind of elaborate and ostentatious display in favor of more practical, streamlined, sober clothing, dark colors, no jewelry, no ornamentation, no makeup. And this was the period of time that he describes as the great masculine renunciation. So 
in some environments, it was as short as a period of 30 years that you can see the difference between masculine fashion that's very, very elaborate and ornate and masculine fashion that's quite subdued and streamlined. And that new masculine fashion has a symbolic importance. It signifies a rejection of the rituals of court. It signifies a rejection of a particular kind of status hierarchy that's explicit and the embrace of enlightenment values, practicality, science, industriousness now suddenly become the most valued traits. And, the, and, and clothing really signifies that, but only for men. And so there's an important gender story here, too. And you do get into quite a bit of discussion about gender and, you know, what we wear and what we across the ages have meant to, you know, what message you mean to send, whether it's, hey, this style of clothing is literally what makes it easy for me to do my job. And you make the point that comfort is usually not actually the biggest decision we make when we choose what clothes to put on. Could you talk a little bit about what we are really considering aside from comfort when it comes to how we choose to dress ourselves, including, you know, what that may say when it comes to gender implications? Yes. So clothing serves these two functions. It signifies status, a position in society, our social role, and that includes things like gender, but it, and also is a way of expressing our individual personality. And as time goes on, this idea of expressing individual authenticity, for instance, becomes very important. Now, streamlined practical clothing begins with an important symbolic resonance. After the great masculine renunciation, it's communicating something. It's not just practical. And in fact, when you look at some of the supposedly practical clothing that evolves, it's actually quite elaborate, but the elaborate parts are hidden. So the men's suit today can be just as elaborate as a haute couture gown, but all of the hard work is concealed on the inside in details of construction, and that makes the suit hang and fit in a particular way. But that's not all about practicality. It's about look, and it's about conveying an image, a modern, streamlined, practical, industrious image. Now, when you get to today's environment, where people who are wearing things that are supposedly practical and comfortable wear hoodies, sweatshirts, t-shirts, or what have you, those are also sending a message. And we can see that when we listen to what they say about it. So let's take Mark Zuckerberg, who's famous for wearing a, a, a gray t-shirt. Well, it's not enough for him to just wear the gray t-shirt because it's comfortable, but he also has to say, and he, he says something like, this. The reason I wear a gray t-shirt every day is because if I wasted time thinking about what to wear every morning, I wouldn't be doing my job. So now suddenly he's as ascribed moral significance to the gray t-shirts and set up a sort of a dress code. Because what do you think we're going to think of the person who comes in and looks like they did spend a lot of time on their dress when the boss has just said, spending a lot of time on your dress means you're not doing your job. And you do make the point that even though he has set up this uniform for himself, when he is called before Congress, he still wears a suit. He puts on a suit. <laughs> so it's still clear that uh, to him, there are still occasions where, nope, it is much more important to dress in a suit than this gray t-shirt. <laughs> I think that whenever we at the ABA Journal run articles with fashion tips for attorneys or you know, do open questions. One of the ones we got 
some of the most feedback on, and this is years back, was uh, seersucker. And are seersucker mm-hmm. suits appropriate for court? And if they are, during what time period? You know, oh, can it only be the summer months? Is it only in the South? And things like this, people get very invested in. And especially for, I think, newcomers to the profession, these are such areas with hidden trapdoors and, and, and pitfalls. What has been your experience, because you were also a practicing attorney at one point in time, you know, you're a young attorney, you're dressing the way you think is professional, and it turns out you've committed some faux pas, some unstated <laughs> fashion rule came, came and bit you. Yes. Well, when I first started practicing as an attorney, I, you know, I went out and bought a bunch of suits that I thought were very nice. And one of them, one of my favorites was a double-breasted suit. You know, very, it was the most expensive one I bought. You know, so I thought the idea was I looked professional in this very nice suit. I came to the office and the head of the practice group where I just started, you know, says, well, that's quite a suit there. So at first I thought, oh, that's a compliment. But he kept saying it every time I wore the suit. Oh, you know, that's really quite a suit there. And I started to realize that it's not exactly a compliment. He's saying that suit's a bit much. And I realized that as I looked around, yeah, this is a suit that's appropriate for a law office, but only the partners are wearing a suit like this. The associates are all wearing something a little bit more you know, subdued. So I realized that was kind of breaching some sort of a status hierarchy was a little bit like the commoner wearing purple. I should save that suit for the weekend and going out on on a date, but not wear it to the office anymore. So those kind of subtle cues are important. And I have to ask, you know, as a law professor, is that something you ever address with your students or, or coach them on or talk to them about when it comes to, you know, well, I'm sending you out into the world to be hopefully employed attorneys, and and here's my best advice for a young lawyer looking to build their first professional wardrobe. Well, only if they ask me directly, and because that kind of advice is very fraught. You know, one of the things I write about in the book is the way law schools have, sometimes have these what to wear and what not to wear events, and they tell the law students what they're you know, should wear, but they, you know, it can be taken the wrong way very easily. Now, it is true that law students sometimes could use a little bit of advice. I could have used a little bit of advice and would have avoided, you know, spending a lot of money on a suit I couldn't wear to work. But, you know, there's so much personally invested in it that it's very easy for people to feel insulted if you tell them that what they're wearing is inappropriate. So it's, it's a pretty delicate thing. Definitely agree with that. And, you know, you bring up in the book, and I think anyone who's been in the world as an adult surely has noticed that there are, you know, cultural and racial issues when it comes to what we wear, what we choose to wear, what we can get away with wearing. You know, I'm a white woman, and my hair is slightly wavy, but it, you know, I I have gone to work with my hair still wet from the shower. Didn't Mm -hmm. even bother blow drying it. Not a problem. And those are standards that I am held to that are not as high as, you know, what some of my colleagues who are are Black women may be, you know, if not required by an official dress code, required by societal norms to do to their hair or their dress and things that, you know, you can or can't get away with. When you were writing the book, how'd you decide to focus on that or describe that 
or get into those issues? Well, this is one of the areas where doing the research for the book actually changed my mind about an issue. In the past, I had thought, you know, dress codes can be problematic, but they're just one of a number of things that you have to do in a workplace environment, in some cases not the most onerous. And if the employer has a dress code about hair, you know, well, that's not a, you know, maybe bothersome, but it's not a civil rights issue. But Looking at the importance of hair in the racial justice struggle and as a matter of racial pride, and in particular, the um, fraught relationship with hair and European standards of beauty for uh, African-American women really made me change my mind about this view, that it, it, you know, it is a social justice issue and it is a civil rights issue. And the um, difficulty in presenting what society considers to be a professional or polished experience in a context in which that is not only comes with gender trapdoors and pitfalls, but with racialized standards of beauty is a serious problem. So those are dress codes that I really think are inappropriate and should be changed. And I want to tack a little bit, staying with the hair idea, but moving on to barristers' wigs, because <laughs> You know, that's something that the American legal profession generally doesn't have to worry about at all, but uh, that our colleagues across the, the pond in either direction, I believe that in uh, Australia, too, wigs are a thing. Could you talk a little bit about the phenomenon of barristers' wigs and why don't we wear them and why do other locations and legal professionals still have to wear those? Yes, it's interesting. So the wig... I've got a whole section in the book about wigs and the powdered wig, which started out as a symbol of aristocratic opulence and it's you know, the big kind of Louis XIV style powdered wig. Over time, because it was a status symbol, became something that other people wanted to wear. But an interesting thing happened, which was that as more people from different social classes decided to wear the wig, it got kind of reconfigured from a big elaborate status symbol to something that was more streamlined, more practical. Wig manufacturers actually even started to market them as something that was just a practical, you know, grooming solution. So the relationship between social status and the wig got more complicated. The barrister's wig first started out as just masculine fashion. It was what, you know, men of a particular social status wore. So people wore that to court in the same way that you'd wear a suit to court. It's the appropriate attire. But over time... As the wig kind of fell out of fashion, they, they got smaller and smaller, and then eventually men stopped wearing. This was part of the great masculine renunciation that we talked about before. The wigs was seen as a form of vanity that was no longer appropriate for men. They stayed with lawyers as a professional symbol. So they got they took on a different meaning, a meaning that they were a symbol of a particular old ancient profession. And it was custom. For, you know, still for lawyers to wear the wig, even though other people in the rest of the society weren't wearing them. Finally, in one case, in I think it was 1844, a lawyer came before a court in England without the wig. And the judge said that he was not seen. And what it meant to say, uh, you are not seen, is you're not dressed appropriately and I won't pay attention to you. You can't argue in front of the court dressed that way. And that case established the principle that um, barristers appearing before the court in England needed to wear the uh, a wig. And that's stayed ever since and has become, you know, a, a rule, a dress code. Well, we may not have the wig as a dress code, but... 
there is a sort of a relic rule that we have for the Solicitor General, but this wasn't something I knew about before I read dress codes. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about the Solicitor General rule of what you're going to wear. And then if you wouldn't mind reading a passage from your book where you describe the story of Elena Kagan and the morning coat. Yes. So the morning coat, in a similar fashion, became required attire for the Solicitor General arguing in front of the Supreme Court. But it started off as simply appropriate attire for lawyers, you know, any lawyer arguing in front of the Supreme Court, so that in there were earlier instances in which the um, justices would object if a lawyer came in wearing what were considered to be street clothes. In one case, Justice Horace Gray, when a lawyer came before them wearing a a, a, a not the morning coat, exclaimed, who is that beast who dares to come in here in a gray coat and refused to see the lawyer and he had to go home and change? He sounds Um, like a real, real good time. Yeah, yes. So to some extent, these um, dress codes still exist today, and it's still tradition for the solicitor general to wear a morning coat and its expected attire. But the difficulty comes about because the morning coat and suit is, of course, a masculine attire. So here's the passage from the book. The sartorial traditions of Anglo-American courts were established during an era when the legal profession was an exclusive boys club. The morning coat, the bench wig, and even the judge's black robe were menswear. However affected and costume-like they look when worn by men today, they are even a more awkward fit for women. So, when a young lawyer named Elena Kagan became the first female solicitor general in 2010, there was widespread concern and consternation surrounding her options for professional attire. Would she wear the morning coat? A lot was at stake because jurists in the Anglo-American tradition are often unforgiving when it comes to sartorial etiquette as was demonstrated by the English custom that barristers who fail to wear the bench wig are not seen by the judge, and by Justice Horace Gray's outrage over the effrontery of a lawyer wearing a gray coat. Columbia Law School professor Patricia Williams recounted another example that was even more germane to Kagan's predicament. During the Clinton administration, a female deputy from the Solicitor General's office once eschewed the masculine morning suit and wore a dove brown or doe beige business suit when she appeared before the Supreme Court. Observers reported that Chief Justice William Rehnquist chastised her in open court for her attire and sent an angry letter to the Solicitor General's office in which he demanded that such a breach of decorum not be repeated. In response, the office recommended that its female attorneys appear before Rehnquist in a feminized version of the traditional morning suit. What is a feminized version of the morning suit? Professor Williams speculated that it would be more or less like the men's version, only with darts at the bust line, and instead of the classic striped charcoal trousers, a neoclassical striped charcoal skirt. Open question whether same requires a Windsor knotted tie with stretched winged collar. Slate's legal commentator, Dahlia Lithwick, tackled the larger dilemma confronting Solicitor General Kagan, noting that in historical terms, the female equivalent of the morning coat is either an off-the-shoulder ball gown or a mother-of-the-bride pastel confection. The problem for Kagan was that the morning suit became professional attire because it was formal masculine attire of its era. It symbolized the virtues of sober judgment and industriousness that inspired the great masculine renunciation. And an indispensable part of that symbolism of masculine attire lies in its contrast with its opposite, 
feminine attire, which came to symbolize much of what the masculine renunciation renounced, ornamentation, display, fantasy, and vanity surrounding the physical body. The mourning suit itself is unmistakably masculine, and as a consequence, any woman who adopts it will unavoidably come off as if dressed in provocative drag, like Marlena Dietrich in the film Morocco. The symbolism of the mourning suit is unmistakably masculine by design. There can be no feminine equivalent. As Lithwick points out, the feminine formal wear of the contemporaneous era is the symbolic opposite of the suit, as unsuitable to a courtroom appearance as full skirts would be during a sword fight. And Lithwick concluded that Kagan should resist the impulse to don anything that suggests she's either a woman doing a man's job or dashing off to a cotillion. For a woman, respecting tradition isn't an option when the tradition in question involves the exclusion of women. Kagan apparently agreed and wore a typical women's business suit as Solicitor General. Today, she's found a solution to the problem of traditional professional attire. As an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, she wears a unisex black robe. Thank you so much for reading that passage. And you do go on to discuss, you know, the... uh conundrum that Sandra Day O'Connor and then Ruth Bader Ginsburg had when it came to adopting that black robe and that there's, you know, it may have been a a baggy sack of cloth, but there still were gender implications. Could you talk a little bit about that and how it how it led to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's particular style flourishes? Yes. So the black robe still has a, a kind of a V-shaped cutout that mirrors the cutout from a lapel on a suit coat. So in a sense, it's still masculine attire. And um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg pointed this out and said that she and Sandra Day O'Connor kind of got together and said, well, we should do something to make this more appropriate for a woman. And they came up with the solution of the lace collar that could be worn on the outside of the robe. And of course, now Ruth Bader Ginsburg became famous for her collection of lace collars, which were such a style statement that her clerks and various admirers would send her, you know, people from around the world send, would send her these lace collars. Of course, she even wore different lace collars to signify different things, like a special one for a dissent, someone she was reading the majority opinion, and what have you. And interestingly enough, she wore her dissent collar on the day Donald Trump, who infamously insisted that women should dress like women was elected president of the United States. Certainly there are always, you know, court watchers who are also trying to be weather forecasters. And, (laughs) uh, you know, they always get excited when they, or used to get excited when they saw Justice Ginsburg wearing her descent collar. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit more about this gender divide and, and the difficulty that arises when what's considered professional also you know, equates to, well, what was the traditional masculine version or what is traditional for women to wear and what are they expected to wear, you know, because they are women. Your colleague, Deborah Rohde, who uh, unfortunately passed very recently, wrote a book called The Beauty Bias. And you you mentioned it several times in your book. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, Deborah and I had some great conversations as I was in the course of writing this book, and her input was instrumental in helping me to see all of the double binds and the difficulties of feminine attire. She wrote quite powerfully about the dilemmas that women face in 
conforming to gendered norms of dress. There's really a catch-22 bind. On the one hand, women are expected to be decorative. And this is one of the things that Deborah wrote so powerfully about in The Beauty Bias. So there's a norm of feminine decorativeness that applies even as women enter into traditionally masculine occupations, where precisely that decorativeness is seen as, you know, kind of discrediting. So there's a real catch-22. You need to wear nylons and high heels and makeup. But of course, those are exactly the kind of things that men renounced when they entered the professions hundreds of years ago during the great masculine renunciation. And so they code immediately as unprofessional, as frivolous. So Deborah was great at zeroing in on those things. And the question of this catch-22 bind that um, women face is one of the big themes of a section of the book on gendered norms. And also, uh, you write quite powerfully about people who, you know, choose not to dress in a way that matches whatever gender they were assigned at birth, whether that is because they themselves have a transgender identity or, you know, they have other reasons to adopt that clothing. Uh, one of the more interesting examples you used was, and I'm, I may not pronounce this correctly, the Chevalier d'Eon. Yes, that's quite the story, and I would love for my listeners to just hear that. It's very powerful, and you write about it in the book, and it just goes straight to the heart when it comes to how fashion can be used to acquire power or to manipulate your social status in such an interesting way. Yes. So the Chevalier Dion was his and her life was surrounded in a great deal of mystery. So the some of the historical records not clear, but what appears to have happened is that he was a agent in the basically the French Secret Service. And as part of his espionage and diplomacy, at one point wore women's clothing in order to either escape detection or to insinuate himself into the Russian court. It was that that part's unclear, but he wore women's clothing. When he returned and later was stationed in London, there began to be speculation about whether the Chevalier Dion was in fact a woman. And it became so heated that in fact, people were taking bets, London bookies were taking bets on whether or not the Chevalier Dion was male or female. Now, in the background, there's all sorts of controversy and intrigue around his relationship with the French government. There's the speculation is that he's now on the ouch with the French government and they've started this rumor to undermine him. At one point, he threatens to publish pamphlets of all of his secret correspondence with France and becomes a big celebrity in London. Gets very complicated, but ultimately, he um, leaves London, according to some accounts, because he's run up so much debt that he needs to escape the creditors in order to avoid debtor's prison leaves London and um, makes a deal to return to France. But a condition of the deal is that he will have to live as a woman and wear women's clothing. So he adopts or accepts this and begins to live life as a woman. And so, you know, at this point, I think it's appropriate to refer uh, to the Chevalier Dion as she lives life as a woman is very finds it hard 
to fit into the constraints that are placed on women during this period in history, this is in the late 1700s um, or mid 1700s, finds it hard to live with the constraints that are placed on a woman at that time, wants to return to his military uniform and what have you, but nevertheless lives life as a woman and ultimately becomes a feminist of a sort. In part, one might argue because of the experiences she had, you know, living life as a woman in women's clothing. I love what she said, and I'm not going to get this quote uh, exactly right, but you have it in the book where she's like, I would rather outfit the dragoons and have to dress all these soldiers than acquire one outfit to wear (laughs) during a day. Yes. Uh, For a woman of that time, there just were so many pieces to it that it was just such a hassle. So right. fascinating character in history, the Chevalier de Young. But to move from history to the present moment, as I was reading the book, which again, for listeners, is Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Made History. As I was seeing all these different periods where there was a real cultural or seismic shift in what was worn or expected to be worn, I had to wonder what the pandemic is going to do to our clothing and expectations. Um, I don't know about my listeners or or you, but I would say for the first three or four months that I was exclusively working from home, not leaving except to go to, to the grocery store, it was it was real clown time when it came to <laughs> my outfit choices. And we are, fingers crossed, within the next year, hopefully approaching a time where it will be safe for more people to emerge back into society, back into the workplace. But do you think we'll have changed our wardrobe expectations? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think expect there will be changes, but I don't think the focus on appropriate dress or dress codes will go away. Fashion is so important to the way people present themselves and and, and understand their place in society that some version of that will uh, continue to exist. It'll be very interesting to see what happens as some people are working remotely and others are going back into the office. But one thing, with respect to remote interactions. One interesting thing that's happened is that although there's less focus on clothing because you can't see anything other, you know, it's it's a talking head, what replaces it? Well, it's Room Raider, where, you know, what you look at what's behind the person in the room, and now people are being judged on the artwork or the furniture or, the, you know, what kind of wine is in the wine rack behind them and these sort of things. And there are a whole set of now rules and expectations that have started to develop around that. Like, you need to clean up your apartment before you go on a Zoom call. It's disrespectful. You need to, you know, make sure that the things in the background send the, you know, the message you want to send. Kind of a dress code for your apartment. So, when one way or another, we're always looking at these things. That's exactly what I was thinking when I was reading the book. I myself, from the very beginning of the pandemic, started using the artwork of an artist named Pam Wishbo for my Zoom room. So I have the green screen going on and I coordinate which Zoom room I am going to use with what's my outfit that day. Ah. But, you know, I really, I had stopped wearing jewelry. It wasn't something I thought about really. 
But and I, I put on a necklace today because I'm speaking to you about <laughs> about fashion. But I had stopped wearing jewelry, but there were still other things like oh, picking the Zoom artwork, or you know, I've been making masks for the past mm-hmm. ten months on a sewing machine and coordinating the you know the mask fabric to what I'm wearing, and I just feel more put together when my mask matches my outfit. And so even in these changing times there's still that instinct to personalize or to either stand out or to match your own self-image of yourself as a person out in the world and how you want to represent that. So I just, I will be very interested to see what comes out of this. I've seen some speculation on Twitter when, and you know, and you actually talk in your book about flapper fashion and how seismic a change that was in, in women's fashion, yet there still were it still led to certain restrictions. You may not be wearing a corset, but there may be another kind of undergarment you have to wear to fit into these fashions. And, you know, speaking as as a woman and speaking to friends of mine who who wear bras, the underwire, I just really mm-hmm. wonder, is that going to um, recede? Are we going to see different kinds of garments because we got used to being in our houses for, for you know, months and months and months. Anyway, so that's that's one of the things that I've been pondering uh, as I read dress codes and and what's next for us. Yeah, I don't know how you found your fashion being affected by the pandemic. Well, you know, like everyone, I shifted to more casual clothing. I mean, there's really no point. You feel a little silly putting on a suit or a sport coat when you're just sitting at home or having all your meetings on Zoom. And, you know, then over time, I felt I, I want to get up and have a normal day as much as I can, even though I'm in the pandemic. And that includes putting on something that's, you know, presentable, that's professional, that, you know, fits with a normal day. So one of the things I noticed is that there's a whole new kind of genre of upgraded loungewear that's come onto the scene so that, you know, you it's it's comfortable, it's, it's kind of made of knit or it's sweatpants, but they're a little more polished looking, they're a little more professional looking. And I wonder whether that's going to be one of the new things to come out of the pandemic that, you know, you still want to look put together and there's still a status aspect to it because, you know, just as there are with things like Allbirds shoes, people know that they're expensive, even though they're casual shoes, that you're going to have that kind of thing with loungewear as well. Yeah, that will be fascinating to to see and to see if it actually makes its way into the courtroom, because it seems to me <laughs> from, you know, talking to lawyers I've known, my own mother was an attorney and, you know, pantyhose was a major part of her life, but it's not had to be part of mine. <laughs> Uh, it, it does seem like the legal community, at least when it comes to appearing in court, you're going to be a couple decades behind when it comes to what's accessible. Yes, because the judges you know, tend to be older and from a different generation, and their view of what communicates respect is different. But you have to care about what the judge thinks of your appearance, and certainly some judges even, you know, chastise people in open court or issue rules about, you know, the clothing or say things to suggest, you know, that's not appropriate for our our courtroom. So you're always safer, you know, putting on the suit or the nylons or the, you know, more conservative, you know, no one's going to complain about that. But if you go in the other direction, you're running a risk. 
Very much so. And there's a darker side to that than, you know, being chastised by the judge when you're an attorney, which is having your clothing choices end up sending you to prison or getting you sentence enhancements or making you the target of violence. And you certainly address that in your book as well. Could you talk a little bit about what you discovered researching the book when it came to issues like that, like sentence enhancements or an outfit that you're wearing being a pretext for a police stop, for example? Yes. So there are in some American cities dress codes, rules that prohibit certain types of dress that are often associated with African-Americans. So, for instance, sagging jeans or clothing that's understood to be um, you know, connected with a gang, but may also be clothing that's worn by you know, large groups of people who aren't involved in criminal activity in, in certain communities. I found that the wrong clothing could be and was used in some criminal prosecutions as evidence of membership in a gang that therefore would tie activity to other much more dangerous gang activity. So in one case, someone who defaced a mural, so it's graffiti, a relatively you know, insignificant infraction, but because of what he was wearing, the prosecutor argued that he was the member of a gang who was in battle with another gang, and that defacing that mural was a provocation. It was similar to an assault. It was a, you know, an act of war uh, that then was responsible for a confrontation that led someone to die. And so they prosecuted this person for the murder because the, you know, on the theory that the defacing the mural was the cause and that someone in his position would know that this would lead to violence down the line. Now, all of this was contestable. Uh, in fact, it wasn't clear that this person was a member of the gang. He may have been wearing the clothing for some other reason. Very interesting story about how people testified in court as to the significance of his clothing and whether it did, in fact, demonstrate that he was a member of a gang. Ultimately, an expert witness pointed out other evidence that he had dressed in different colors at a different time and even dressed his son up in clothing that would have signified membership in the opposing gang. Um, and that was the evidence that was used to say, well, you know, if he was really a member of this gang, there's no way he would dress his son in the other colors of the other gang. And that's proof that actually that clothing didn't signify what the prosecutors said it did. But it's a real phenomenon um, that clothing can have that quite serious consequence. You know, I think that it's hard not to think about Trayvon Martin wearing a hoodie, which I personally have upwards of six hoodies in my own closet. But this young teen wearing a hoodie was considered a provocation and signed that he was a danger to the community such that stand your ground laws should apply to you know, his shooting. And that that was one of the starker cases that, and you you know mentioned that in your book, of course. But yes. it really is a thinker about how even the same clothing put on a different body with different societal expectations or perceptions can go from being innocuous to seen as you know a danger. And that certainly is in no way comedic or or lighthearted. But yeah. you do reference several cases throughout the ages, and I'm talking, you know, back to the 1400s and the 1500s, 
that now come across that way to us comedic that, you know, a man whose pantaloons were simply, you know, far too shocking and he was going to cause women to faint in the streets. So his pantaloons had to be seized from him and hung on the walls of the city of London or, or something of that sort. And, you know, those come across as so anachronistic to us or the straw hat, is that the straw hat riot? I mean, am I getting that correct? Yes, yes, the straw hat riot, where if you wore a straw hat after, I think it was September 15th, that was considered to be a great offense to good taste. And um, marauding gangs would come and knock the hats off of people and impale them on pikes and apparently created a great riot throughout Manhattan. The, the reports um, suggested all the way from the Bowery up to Harlem with people fighting either to retain their hats or to, to knock the hats off of passersby. It caused a you know, stop traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge and all kinds of upheaval based simply on the uh, affront of wearing a straw hat after September 15th. Well, one thing I would love to get from you before we let you go, and thank you so much for joining us, you. is, you know, you mentioned that throughout the centuries, there have always been manuals or or written codes of, you know, etiquette and behavior and fashion. And, you know, I know my parents are both attorneys and growing up, I know that on the bookshelves were, you know, how to dress for success and women's how to dress for success. Uh, and you're having to figure out what color family you fall in and and all that. But I, I do wonder, are there current books that you would recommend for either young attorneys or even attorneys who are pretty far into their profession when it comes to how to adopt fashion that flatters you and makes you appear, quote unquote, professional, however the legal profession defines that? Oh, that's a good question. So there are a few that come to mind. Alan Flusser has written two books. One's called Style and the Man, and it's a short book that gives good advice. Esquire magazine put out a book a while back called The Handbook of Style, and that's a good one which isn't pushing people too fashion forward. It's more in the classic mode, and that's something for professionals that's important, um, but gives uh, you know good advice about appropriate style. And then another one, which is a little bigger, more of a coffee table book, again, Alan Flesser, Dressing the Man. The, so those are great for male uh, attorneys. You know, for women, the rules are more complicated, and so it's harder to come up with just that right manual. You know, there are more options. The landmines are more prevalent. Uh, I know that many law schools, for instance, have set up, you know, what not to wear type conferences, but it's always very tricky to get that balance right. And so I'm afraid I don't have the, you know, the, the go-to sources there, both because I'm a man, but also I think it is just harder for women. So if my listeners were interested in picking up your book, Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Made History, where could they do that? Where should they go? So several places. Of course, your independent local bookstore is a great place, and many have websites that where the book will be available. Bookshop.org is a good go-to source for books which partners with independent bookstores. And of course, there's always Amazon as well, but it'll be available. It's available for pre-order now, and it publishes on um, February 9th. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Again, for my listeners, this has been Richard Thompson Ford, author of Dress Codes. 
How the Laws of Fashion Made History, and thank you to everyone who joined us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service. And if you have a book in mind that you would love for me to cover on this podcast, go ahead and reach out to us at books at abajournal.com.